Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And to know that they were in their motivations, in their reactions, in their inability to get themselves out of difficult situations once they've gotten in them, um, it, it shows that they were very much like us. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Robert Finelli talking about a fatal dispute amongst two British guards, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Robert Finelli. He'll be telling us about a duel between two gentlemen in the British military. Uh, and, you know, the finality of it all. This is one of those great articles that you're really only going to find at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, two men of some importance in the British military and the British Army during the American Revolution... Uh, fighting on the same side with very serious bad blood, uh, very real personal animosity between them. There will be court-martials involved, uh, there will be disciplinary action taken, and in the end, still, one of them will be shot and killed in a duel. Dueling is definitely not the most efficient way of dealing with your problems, I think it's safe to say. I'm really glad we don't do it anymore. Uh, now we just, you know, block or unfriend someone we don't agree with on Facebook, which is great. Uh, but dueling with pistols is not a joke. It's a very real event with very real consequences. Uh, just ask Alexander Hamilton. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Robert and Finale. Robert Finelli, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady, for the opportunity to speak with you today. Tell us about your background. Well, I live where I grew up, uh, just outside of Philadelphia, in an area where in 1777, both the British and the American armies were both right here. Uh, and uh, as a boy, uh, I always thought the American Revolution had taken place somewhere important. <laughs> it turns out it was happening right here. And that just sparked my interest in uh, in the period. So uh, even today, as I, as I walk around, uh, I see these scenes and places where all these people were. And it makes me wonder, you know, just what were they experiencing? So that's a fascinating thing for me. My educational background, I studied anthropology and communication at Temple University and later at Indiana University I studied folklore and and those experiences kind of shaped my thinking and the kinds of questions I ask about about things when I start doing research um, I had a career uh, as a professional trainer 
uh, worked for a number of different corporations, and then I worked for the Internal Revenue Service for 30 years, uh, where I became responsible for the service's leadership training. And that also uh, affects the way I think about things. So um, in my work, of course, uh, I was interested in organizational structure, how people organize themselves, and, and also particularly in human interaction, how people deal with uh, conflict in particular. So um, that, that also kind of informs my perspective. What first drew your interest into this topic? It's funny. I was uh, actually doing research on, for another article about a, a woman named Lydia Darrow who had uh, risked her life to bring information out through the uh, lines from occupied Philadelphia to Washington's army. And I was reading an 1830s um, account of some of the things that took place in the Philadelphia area, John Fanning Watson's Annals of Philadelphia. And I came across this intriguing little squib. It was kind of a humorous situation. Uh, It was about the Honorable Cosmo Gordon and how he overslept the day that the British evacuated Philadelphia. And the people had to wake him up, get him out of bed, and, uh, and... uh, he escaped <laughs> by the skin of his teeth, uh, managed to get across the Delaware at the very last minute. So, uh, And it was told in a way that it seemed that they expected that kind of everybody knew who the Honorable Cosmo Gordon was, but I didn't. So I thought, well, I need to learn a little bit more about this man. And as I dug around, I found that you know he had been involved in this duel. He was you know pretty famous for that at the time. And that there were several uh, court records about uh, his involvement in 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 uh, events uh, around the battle of springfield in 1780 and then um uh, a murder trial when he was involved in this duel so uh, the more i dug the more interesting it became i wanted to get the bottom of what happened there who was cosmo gordon The Honorable Cosmo Gordon, as he always referred to himself, was uh, the son of a younger son of a, the Earl of Aberdeen in Scotland, and on his mother's side, he was uh, the grandson of the Duke of Gordon. So he came from uh, pretty prestigious lines, and well, because he was a younger son, he was unlikely to inherit any titles. Still, uh, he was entitled to call himself the Honorable. And um, he grew up sort of a part of the upper crust, uh, the uh, nobility of, uh, of England and Scotland. And he, and he lived in, in London in a very fashionable neighborhood. When he was about in his early 20s, he, because he wasn't going to inherit a title or anything, he, he joined the military. And, of course, he joined as an officer. He was already a gentleman. And he made a point of joining uh, the uh, one of the household regiments of the king. So the guards regiments were originally formed to uh, be the household troops of royalty. And there were three foot regiments at the time. And he joined the uh, third regiment of guards, the Scots Guards, uh, which is a very prestigious organization. And when people join that organization, they're not just joining the military, but they're also joining sort of a a gentleman's club. And uh, they have sort of an elevated status in the Army. 
Oh, uh, he became a career officer, and uh, when the Brigade of Guards was formed out of these guards regiments to come to America uh, in the 1770s, uh, he eventually came over in uh, probably about the fall of 77 or early uh, 1778 and, and was here in Philadelphia. Talk a bit about the other side of this story, Frederick Thomas. Yeah, Frederick Thomas is a, is a man who wasn't as well known as as Cosmo Gordon. He he didn't live as long, and so and he didn't have descendants, so there wasn't a whole lot written about him. But I was able to dig out a few things. He was the son of a baronet, so a baronet is like the lowest rung on the ladder of the nobility in England. Um, it's it's prestigious, but not nearly as prestigious as Cosmo Gordon's ranks, and um, and he was a Welshman by uh, descent. He evidently had a fairly strong Welsh accent, and he lived also in this prestigious uh, neighborhood just uh, just west of downtown London. Uh, he, um, his father, uh, had some you know actually very uh, important positions in working closely with the royal family. Um, um, Thomas joined the, a, a different guards regiment, the first guards regiment, and um, you know he gradually rose through the ranks. But the, the important thing to remember about these guys is that when they join the guards as officers, uh, they are really striving uh, for prestige and position, and this is something that's really important to them. I think it was important to both of these men. It's not easy to know a lot about Thomas, but one thing that kind of humanized him for me was I found that he had collected and brought home to England a pair of these beautiful uh, beaded uh, Indian moccasins that uh, today uh, rest in the uh, collection of the Colonial Williamsburg. And it just gave me a slightly different perspective on the man. But it, but it's hard to know very much about him other than you know his involvement with Cosmo Gordon during this uh, uh difficulty that they had between them in uh, in 1780 what were the circumstances which these men met they probably knew each other um, when they were in the guards uh, regiments back in England uh, but there were three different regiments so they did not work closely together they were in different regiments uh, they they both lived in the same neighborhood and so they they may have seen each other uh, around socially uh, I don't think they really got to know each other well until they were both in America. And I can't really tell when um, when Thomas came, but by 1780, they were working together closely on a daily basis and living together closely on a daily basis. And I think this caused some friction between them, especially because uh, being of different social ranks, and uh, I think Thomas was striving for respectability and Gordon seems to have been uh, a bit of a snob. Could you talk about some of their shared military history? Well, uh, they were both uh, members of this elite uh, unit, the Brigade of Guards. So there was the um, the three regiments of the household uh, foot guards, first, second, and third. Thomas belonged to the first, uh, which is usually credited as being the senior of the three regiments. Uh, Gordon belonged to the 3rd Regiment, uh, which is sort of the junior regiment, the Scots Guards. Um, When the American War began, they 
created a brigade of guards, which was uh, a separate unit that consisted of members and mixed up members from all three of the regiments. And this uh, is what thrust them together. Uh, in America, the guards were involved in the Philadelphia campaign. I think they came They came in 1776. They were involved first in the uh, New York campaigns, uh, the uh, different uh, ac- activities around New York, and then they came to Philadelphia with Hal's army and were active here. But I'm not sure that either of these two gentlemen were present during the Philadelphia campaign until the end. Uh, they marched across New Jersey uh, as they evacuated Philadelphia, heading back to New York. Uh, Gordon, at least, was involved in the Battle of Monmouth and very actively involved at that. He had a a bayonet shot off of his uh, fusil and uh, got a bullet hole through his coat uh, during the battle, uh, but uh, managed to drive off the Americans who were harassing uh, uh, the guards at that point. I'm not sure exactly what other activities or battles these two may have been in together but by 1780 they were serving together and gordon had become the um effectively the colonel of the battalion in which thomas served so thomas was his subordinate captain managing a company what do you feel really began their feud that would ultimately end in one of them being killed oh uh, they're living together and working together, and uh, they're spending a lot of time around one another. And I think um, uh, Gordon's personality and, and habits really grated on Thomas. Uh, Thomas seems to have bridled under, um, under Gordon's supervision. Um, and so there was probably already some animosity there when the Battle of uh, Springfield takes place on June 23, 1780. Um, Early that morning, as the troops are marching out, um, Gordon isn't actually doing very much in the way of active management of his three uh, battalion companies, uh, one of which, again, is led by Thomas. Uh, He and uh, another uh, lieutenant colonel go cantering off to see the ladies at uh, Liberty Hall, uh, William Livingston's uh, mansion. He was the governor, rebel governor of uh, New Jersey. And uh, they're passing this mansion, and, and these two gentlemen ride off to uh, see, see the ladies who are, you know, have come out to watch the army march by. And uh, Gordon... Uh, agrees to uh, provide protection so that the army won't burn the house. And the, the uh, one of the daughters of William Livingston gives him uh, a rose or a bunch of roses, and he places them in his hat and then goes riding back, you know, to, to, to join the army. And meanwhile, here's Thomas and the other officers slogging by with their men. And I think they probably felt just a little gen- jealous, maybe a little angry that Gordon wasn't really paying all all that much attention to the march. Um, So later in the day, as the uh, American militia are harassing the guards' column, uh, Thomas is is detailed to go and, and try to fight these guys off and drive them back. And Gordon is, meanwhile, in the in the back of the, 
the, the column hobnobbing with uh, General Matthew and, and, and the others, people of his social rank. And he's not really paying much attention to active management of the um, of the companies. And, and I think that Thomas and his fellow uh, company commanders probably were all kind of giving Gordon the cold shoulder to begin with. And so it was much more pleasant for him to be, uh, you know, talking with, uh, with people of, of equal rank. Um, sometimes when, when subordinates don't really care for their, their, their superiors, they have a tendency to uh, not pay much attention to them and just, you know, go about doing what they need to do. Um, Gordon may have felt that, and and so that may have been an extra reason why he wasn't right there with them. Uh, they were competent to handle the small task in front of them, which was just to drive off the militia. Um, it could be fatal for a couple of people. It's certainly a, a, a dangerous activity, but but not really a big deal. Not a pitched battle. And uh, and so so Thomas uh, probably knows that Gordon is in the back of the column. And he sends out uh, somebody to look for him to get orders. I don't think Thomas really wanted orders, and, and neither did Gordon think that. Um, and, and he sends out uh, an, a second guy just a couple minutes later, and then he sends out even a third man looking for Gordon. Where is Gordon? And he directs them to find Gordon where he thinks Gordon ought to be, but where he knows Gordon is not. He doesn't direct any of them to the back of the column. They all come back and say, well, we didn't find him. And so Gordon uh, now has a... Uh, uh, sort of a case against, uh, I'm sorry, Thomas has a sort of a case against Gordon that uh, Gordon isn't doing his uh, his duty. He's he's not where he should be. Um, as the the uh, as the the maneuvers progress, uh, they find themselves on top of a ridge. They've now driven off the uh, the American resistance, and Gordon shows up and starts giving orders and these guys just ignore him and they act like he's not even there. Uh, but when he encounters Thomas, uh, Thomas accuses him of, of, uh, shirking and, and hiding and being afraid of combat. And this is a, a great insult. Gordon, uh, just doesn't respond. He says, I was in the, in the rear waiting for orders. And I think that, that the fact that Gordon responded coolly to him, it enrages Thomas, and Thomas starts to um, accuse him um, in front of his commander of cowardice, and he's saying a lot of a lot of nasty things. His uh, Gordon's commander, uh, Colonel Howard, uh, tells Thomas, "Hey, you, you know, you better cut this out because because Gordon can hear you. He can hear what you're saying." And he says, "I intend that he should," and then. He says to, uh, in Gordon's presence, he says to Howard, I had the honor to command our uh, battalion coming up on the hill here. And, uh, and Gordon, with these flowers in his hat, looks at Thomas and very composedly says, well, if that's a feather in your cap, you may wear it. Well, this obviously would enrage Thomas because here's this guy with these flowers in his cap and he's, he's uh, just ignoring uh, Thomas's anger. So um, throughout the rest of the day, Thomas continues to harangue uh, Gordon, and Gordon just doesn't pay much attention. But as they come back past uh, Liberty Hall, past William Livingston's mansion, 
there's some firing going on, and uh, and Gordon is wounded, and uh, a wound in battle is a, certainly a mark of honor, and this really, uh, I think, enraged Thomas even further. Gordon goes back to um, New York City to convalesce, spends about six or seven weeks uh, in, in relative comfort. Obviously, he's in pain um, before he returns to his uh, units. And and then when he does come back, um, he hears about Thomas's uh, continued accusations, and he has to do something about it. So when Gordon returns to uh, to his command, uh, he learns from his adjutant that um, that Thomas has been stirring up trouble and talking behind his back, and he confronts him publicly in front of the other officers, and asks, you know, who's saying these bad things about me? And, and Thomas is sort of reluctant to admit it, but uh, finally, uh, under pressure, he says, okay, it was me. And, and Gordon arrests him and takes his sword, which is uh, a gentleman's, you know, officer's mark of honor, and uh, puts him under arrest and then um, has him court-martialed for saying, uh, saying uh, casting aspersions on, on Gordon's character, on his superior's character as commander's character. Um, the trial takes place over several days, and uh, eventually the officers acquit Thomas because uh, Thomas's argument is a good one. He did not ever secretly cast aspersions on uh, Gordon's character. He did it very publicly. So... Uh, <laughs> The officers don't really want to get involved in this. The whole time that this has been going on, uh, from the day of the Battle of Springfield until until this trial, so Thomas has, has been actively undermining um, Gordon's command. And he's been doing it basically behind his back because Gordon was away for six weeks. Um, once, this, uh, once the court-martial is over and Thomas is exonerated, uh, Gordon decides that he's going to challenge him to a duel because, uh, as everybody has viewed this from the very beginning, this is really a an argument between two gentlemen. It's not about anything uh, military. It's not about shirking duty. It's really about uh, insults that were exchanged. And there's a unwritten code of honor that gentlemen follow. And uh, the injured party is entitled to r request an apology or demand satisfaction. And Gordon is demanding satisfaction from Thomas, who does not want to apologize at all. Thomas thinks he's within his right, and he's a little miffed that the Army hasn't investigated Gordon and investigated his charges. But, but, but Thomas never actually formally filed any charges, and so this is an affair of honor. A uh, couple days after the court-martial is over, Gordon encounters Thomas, who's now wearing his sword again, on the streets of New York, and challenges him to a duel face-to-face. -face. Uh, Thomas backs down. Thomas says, well, uh, this, this, this affair hasn't been resolved yet. He's still expecting that Gordon is going to undergo a court-martial, and, uh, and he doesn't want to fight him. So... Eventually, uh, these two men are separated. Uh, Gordon uh, stays in New York, but Thomas is uh, detailed somewhere else for a while. 
and then and then um Gordon is requesting a court martial to vindicate his honor and a couple years it takes a couple years before this court martial takes place but in 1782 I believe uh, they finally actually have a court martial of Gordon and you know they bring up all the charges that that Thomas had leveled against uh, Gordon and Gordon defends his behavior and and the court finds him not guilty they said that he wasn't derelict in his duty and he's exonerated and and shortly after promoted again so this is really uh, angering to Thomas but Thomas ends up going back to England and a couple months later Gordon shows up in England as well he's going back home now and as soon as he gets back within a within a couple of days he sends a letter to Thomas and uh, challenges him again to a duel because he feels that his honor has been stepped on uh, Thomas absolutely declines once again and he puts his servant uh, Thomas Hobbs under um, under an order to not receive any communications from Cosmo Gordon he doesn't want to have anything to do with him and he doesn't want to be forced to fight a duel with him and in fact even he in writing back to to Gordon he even insults him by suggesting that that Gordon would uh, sneak up on him like an assassin and attack him and he says I have my sword and I will defend myself but he won't fight a duel uh, shortly after that, Thomas goes away for sort of a vacation in the country, I suppose. And at the end of the summer, he comes back. Gordon is laying for him. He's just waiting for him to come back. He's got his spies out in the neighborhood. And uh, as soon as uh, Thomas returns, uh, one of Gordon's cousins, an officer in another regiment, uh, waits upon Thomas. And Thomas doesn't exactly know who this guy is. He lets him into the house and well, well, what is it? <laughs> and and the officer hands Thomas another letter from Gordon, saying that unless you meet me tomorrow morning in Hyde Park, um, I'm, you're a coward, and everybody will know it. So that leads to the duel the next day. They'll eventually have a duel with pistols. What brought this about, and what happened? Thomas uh, goes out and finds a second, uh, procures uh, two braces of pistols, and then he sits down that night to write his will. And he says, I'm being forced into a personal interview with Cosmo Gordon against my will. I think this is a, a really a dumb thing to do, basically. Uh, but he's, he's now he's got to do it. Uh, the next morning, uh, within sight of Thomas's house, Thomas puts on his uniform, and within sight of his house, he marches out to um, to the ring in Hyde Park. His servant is watching from the garret, and he sees these two men come together with their seconds and and friends, and uh, they they have a duel. Um, the first shot is fired. Gordon misses, and Thomas's pistol flashes in the pan. Gordon uh, appeals to the seconds and says, well, shouldn't that count as a shot? They say no. They overrule Gordon, and Thomas is allowed to take his other pistol, and (laughs) Gordon just stands there. Thomas fires at him again. This time, uh, the gun goes off, but he misses. 
So now they go to their next set of pistols, and uh, the two men fire again. This time, Thomas wounds Gordon. Uh, it doesn't. The bullet doesn't penetrate. I think it's more of a flesh wound, but it's still a very dangerous and painful wound. Um, but Gordon's shot hits Thomas in the gut, uh, which is usually a, a fatal kind of wound back then. Even today, it's extremely dangerous and very painful. Uh, Thomas falls. And Gordon, for all his insistence on, you know, maintaining his honor and vindicating himself, uh, evidently feels pretty bad about this. And he says to his surgeon, whom he brought along, oh, please tend to this poor man. Uh, But they take Thomas back to his house. It's just a couple of blocks. Uh, They call in another doctor and and the two doctors agree that you know this is a a mortal wound and thomas is going to die and it takes him about a day of suffering about 24 hours uh, during which the whole time he keeps cursing gordon and calling him a villain and finally thomas expires so that was the immediate outcome Realizing that um, he's going to be accused of murder because dueling is technically against the law, and uh, Gordon flees to uh, Calais in France, across the Channel, and uh, puts up at the Hotel Angleterre, the uh, famous place back then for uh, British people who were on the continent, and... um, He's in, encountered there a few days later by, by another gentleman who who sees him hobbling about the, the garden of the hotel, you know, on a, on a stick, uh, still trying to recover from his wound. The, the British government files charges, uh, murder charges against Gordon, and uh, he comes back to face trial. What was the aftermath of the duel? The murder trial um, is pretty detailed. There are uh, lots of witnesses, lots of comments, and the accusation is a, is a strong one. But the prosecutor, very interestingly, uh, goes very soft on Gordon. Um, he basically explains that while, while dueling is against the law, uh, people of feeling uh, and gentlemen uh, will recognize that it's really a necessary institution. And... Um, Gordon brings on a, a long, uh, long queue of witnesses headed by Sir Henry Clinton, who had been the commander-in-chief in America during Gordon's tenure there, and, um, and admirals and other you know, high-ranking officers. Uh, Lord Dunmore is there testifying to Gordon's good behavior and character. <laughs> The jury deliberates for 10 minutes and and finds Gordon not guilty. However, uh, within a a few weeks, Gordon resigns his commission and leaves the army. Robert, how do you feel this article helps us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, uh, first of all, I think that um, resurrecting the story of the Battle of Springfield, which takes place, uh, there's a lot of information about part of the Battle of Springfield that the guards uh, took play t- took part in that uh, really hadn't ever come out before. So it's a nice uh, nice supplement to uh, Edward Lengel's recent 
book on uh, on the Battle of Springfield, which is excellent. Uh, so we, we can learn a little bit more about tactically what took place. Um, I, I think an important thing is that we see uh, that uh, British regulation uh, isn't as important as British culture, especially uh, for officers. So while the British uh, Army is viewed as being a very highly structured organization, lots of rules and regulations that are adhered to carefully, uh, we find that in situations of conflict between gentlemen, uh, what really pertains or uh, is most important uh, are the informal rules and the culture, British culture and the culture of British nobility. Uh, I think also that this um, story helps us to see the humanity of the people in this era and to know that they were in their motivations and their reactions in their inability to get themselves out of difficult situations once they've gotten in them. Um, it, it shows that they were very much like us. I have to say that uh, one of the things that uh, I learned from from having written the article is we always get uh, interesting comments from uh, from readers. And there was a series of comments that were made um, after this article about uh, Cosmo Gordon's uh, career afterwards and the fact that he was a, a, a musician. And he uh, composed a number of dances. Uh, there were links in these um, in these comments to six different dances that he composed. And there was even a link to a recording of the Cosmo Gordon Waltz that was written in his honor. So although he... Um, you know, faced some embarrassment uh, from Thomas's accusations. He continued to live the life of a bon vivant and a cultured gentleman. Robert Finelli, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.